Well, I'd like to invite your attention to the second chapter of Daniel, and we are going to read all 49 verses of the, the chapter together. Now, this is, is a narrative. So when you preach a narrative, the sermon is a little different than what you may be used to. Uh, let me put it this way. There won't be three smooth points of poem and a prayer, all right? Because we have to take the unit as a whole in order to get to the meaning of what God is saying here. Let me give a couple of, uh, not necessarily disclaimers, but from where I'm approaching this text from. First of all, this text is not primarily about these kingdoms that have been in the past that God has brought to the fore and then God has demolished. That is not primarily what this text is about. That is a, that they, they, that is a part of the text that God uses to make his main point. If you think that I'm going to go into all every little nuance and detail of the parts of this statue, you're going to walk away sorely disappointed. But if you listen to what God is trying to communicate here, you'll go away joyfully glad. Okay. Second thing I want to point out is that as we read this text, there is some, there is some discrepancy among commentators as to whether or not Nebuchadnezzar actually forgot the dream or never knew the dream or that he knew the dream, he just wasn't going to tell his wise men what the dream was, and he did that for a specific reason. I come down, after studying this, I come down on the side that Nebuchadnezzar actually knew what the dream was. And it was so important that he understand what the meaning of the dream was. He was not going to give the wise men of Babylon, he was not going to give them any opportunity to uh, pull the wool over his eyes. In other words, the, if they could tell him what the dream was, then he felt like he could better trust their interpretation. Think about it. I don't, I, I don't want to be dogmatic about that. He say, well, I think that he knew what the dream was, uh, 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 that, he, that he didn't know what the dream was. That's fine. But I just want you to know the way that I frame my sermon, I frame it from this perspective. He did, he did know what the dream was. So here we go. Daniel chapter 2, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep, his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. 
The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we ask of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its, inter- and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what it is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the fields, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. 
Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. As you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were, part, were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay." And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation sure." Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. Father, bless the reading of your word, I pray. Amen. Nebuchadnezzar bolted up from his bed. His heart was racing. His hair was damp with sweat. The darkness of the night seemed to be collapsing his chest, smothering him, making it hard to breathe. It wasn't like him to panic. He was battle-tested and he was battle-hardened. But this cursed dream, it was more than a dream. It was a, becoming a nightmare to him. And he says to himself, you've got to get a hold of yourself. You're an accomplished warrior. You have stared death in the eye many times, and you've always come out as the victor. You've risen through the ranks of your father's army, and you've become a decorated general. Nebuchadnezzar was probably about 25 years old at this point in time. The, way, the reason he became king of Babylon was because his father died, and Nebuchadnezzar was actually out on the battlefield when that happened. Country after country has fallen before Nebuchadnezzar. He, he could rightly say to himself, I'm the mightiest king on the face of the earth. But there's something about this dream. See, the Babylonians believed that their gods communicated to them important truths through their dreams. So he had to be thinking, what are the gods of Babylon trying to tell me through this dream? He had to be asking himself, what is the message that I'm not getting? It must be an important message, or else why would I have this dream night after night after night? And what is the meaning of this statue? That stretches from land to sky. Why is it made up of so many different kinds of materials? What's the meaning of the gold head? Why is the chest and arms made of silver? Why is the stomach and thighs made of bronze? And then there's those legs of iron. And what's up with these feet? Why are they made with iron and clay? But things get worse. He sees a stone cut from a mountain with no human hands. That's important. And this Stone approaches this mountain. And I wonder if Nebuchadnezzar saw it this way. He sees this mighty stone, 
mighty in power, not necessarily in size, mighty in power, and it seemingly picks up speed and crashes into the statue. And it collides with a statue with such force, I wonder if Nebuchadnezzar could feel the reverber reverberations in his own chest. And as the dust settles from the impact of the collision, this strong wind begins to blow, and the statue is entirely blown away. It's described as like chaff on the threshing floor. This wind picks up the gold, the bronze, the iron, and the clay, which has been ground to a fine powder, and blows it all away. This magnificent statue is nothing more than what? Dust in the wind. And he has to wonder, what's the meaning of the stone? It keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger until it becomes a huge mountain that fills the entire earth. The entire horizon is completely engulfed with this mountain. He's never seen anything like it. Perhaps he wonders, is there a plot against me? Is there an enemy who thinks they can take me down? Are there traitors in my midst? The two kings that followed Nebuchadnezzar were assassinated. What's the meaning of the dream? And so finally he's had enough. And he says, you know what? He says, I've got the magicians, I've got the enchanters, I've got the sorcerers, uh, I've got the Chaldeans. I want you to go get them. After all, that's why they're on the payroll. It's time for you guys to earn your money. And once his wise men are assembled, he lays out the scenario for them. He says, I've had a dream, and my spirit is troubled by the dream. That, that phrase there, my spirit is troubled by the dream, literally means his heart was racing. His heart was pounding. That's how much it had affected him. He says, my spirit has been troubled by this dream, and I need you guys to tell me what it means. Now, all of a sudden, we see Nebuchadnezzar's paranoia. Say, how so? Well, notice what he says. He says, sorry, fellas, that's not the way it's going to work this time. I want to make sure that you really know what the dream means, and a surefire way to make sure you know what it means is by you figuring out what the dream was. No messing around with with me this time. No head games, no word games, no linguistic gymnastics. I've had enough of all of that. You say, this is what they said, these wise men, these uh, astrologers and chanters, you say that you are in contact with the gods, and if you are, telling me what the dream was and telling me what it means shouldn't be any problem for you at all. And I think Nebuchadnezzar's thinking was something like this, if only the gods know the dream, then whoever reveals the dream must be in touch with the gods. Sound logic. Sound logic. Apparently the wise men never thought of that. And so he goes on, he says, just so you boys know that I'm serious, if you can't tell me the dream and what it means, I'm literally going to tear you limb to limb. As, as gruesome as this is, what it literally means is that they would hack them to death. They would die a gruesome, horrible, painful death. And after that, he would go and destroy their houses. Well, about this time, the wise men figured out they were in serious trouble. So they say to the king, once more, if you'll just tell us what the dream is, we'll be more than happy to tell you what the meaning of the dream is. But Nebuchadnezzar's not going to be put off, so he states his position again. Look at verses 8 and 9. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. 
You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. So about this time, if you're a wise man, what would you be doing? I know what I'd be doing, looking for an exit or panicking. They probably couldn't escape, so they probably panicked. So they say the king, here in verses 10 and 11, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Ding, ding, ding. First time they probably said something true in a long time. These wise men weren't apparently very wise because if they were, they would have divined that the answer that they gave to the king, he was in no mood to hear. He had heard enough, so he calls out to his chief guard. Chief guard is a nice way of saying chief executioner. So he says, Ariok, Ariok, get in here. Ariok, you see this sorry bunch call themselves wise men? I want you to take them. Then I want you to go round up the rest of the so-called wise men, and I want you to tear them limb from limb, and after that I want you to go destroy their houses. Well, let's pause here for a moment and just examine Nebuchadnezzar. What do we see here? Well, first of all, we see a powerful man, no doubt about that. Probably the most powerful man on the face of the earth at the time. We also see an accomplished man. As I said, he was probably 25 or so when he became the king of Babylon. He, history tells us he was an accomplished general. We see a man who has risen to the highest pinnacles of success, but that's not all that we see. We see a man who is tremendously inwardly insecure. He has only been the king now for a couple of years, and now he feels that his position is being threatened. He's not sure by who, and he's not quite sure how he's being threatened, but that insecurity rises to the top, and it causes him to make some irrational decisions. But not only is he inwardly insecure, he is overtly hostile. And it was his insecurity that fueled his hostility. I think it was Sinclair Ferguson that said, Nebuchadnezzar was at war with others because he was not at peace with himself. And he was not at peace with himself because he was not at peace with God. Do you know somebody who can't get along with anybody? I've learned over the years I'm probably not the problem. They probably have a problem with God, and that's how it manifests itself. Let's go back to Daniel. Daniel is at home, apparently. Somebody beats on his door. He opens the door only to be grabbed by men sent by Arioch, the king's executioner. And I imagine he thought, wait, uh, what's going on here? And I wonder if he said it out loud if one of the old grizzled Soldier said to him, you'll find out soon enough, wise man, or should I say wise boy. So Daniel and his friends are turned over to Arioch, and everybody knew who Arioch was. So whatever was going on, they knew that it was pretty serious. So the narrator of the story at this point tells us that Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. He says to him, in essence, what's the hurry? Daniel says, let me make an appointment with the king, and I'll show him the interpretation. Now, is this just another cocky action of a cocky teenager? No. Remember, we saw last week 
The quiet confidence of Daniel. And here again we see the quiet confidence of Daniel. And we see the expectation from Daniel that God would be glorified through the ability that God had given to him to understand and to interpret the dreams. It was not self-confidence. It was God-confidence. He was confident in God. He was confident in his confidence in, and his confidence in God is revealed in what he immediately does after getting an appointment with the king. What does he do? Well, he returns to his three friends. Now notice something very important here. Even though they were numbered among the wise, he did not sit down with them and say, fellas, here's the situation. What do you think? Isn't that our tendency? Something comes up, a problem that we have to deal with, and so we gather around us those who may be closest to us, and we ask them their advice and their counsel. That's not wrong. It's not the first thing that you should do. You should do what Daniel did. And what did Daniel do? He went to his friends and said, you know what? We've got to go to God in prayer. We have got to seek the mercies of God. He asked them to pray with him to seek God's mercy so that God would be glorified and, by the way, our lives will be spared. <coughs> Perhaps our prayer lives would have more impact if we prayed as if our lives depended upon it or the lives of those that we love depended upon it. So they prayed. God answered. God first revealed the contents of the dream to Daniel, and then God gave him the interpretation of the dream. Now, let me ask you a question. At this point, what would you do? Your life is on the line unless the king gets the proper interpretation of this dream. You have it. You have it. God has given it to you. What would you do? What would be the first thing that you would do? Personally, I would think I'd make a beeline to the king. I'd be knocking on the king's door. I've got it. I found it. Here we go. But notice what Daniel does. He prays. He prays again. He prays for wisdom. He prays for God's mercy. And remarkably, when God answers, what does he do? He prays again. In other words, he has the right response. He has the right response. See, he's been confident in God all along. And so he expresses his confidence through prayer. Look again at verses 20 through 23. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and set up, sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we ask of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. He takes the time to pray. He praises God. He thanks God. Then, and only then, he goes back to Arioch and he says, Take me to see the king. I have got this dream figured out. And I would hope that Arioch let out a sigh of relief because he didn't have to go on a killing spree. And so 
He takes Daniel to the king. Now notice what he says in verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him. Now notice this guy. I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Typical politician, typical bureaucrat, taking credit for something he had nothing to do with. Hey, king, I went out and missed all the panic and the turmoil, and he's probably thinking in his own mind that you created. I kept my head. I found this guy, and he's going to make both the, what the dream was and its meaning. He's going to make it known to you. So the king asked Daniel, is that true? Can you do this? Can you really tell me what the dream is and what it means? Now, notice Daniel's reply, and notice how different it is from Arioch. Look at verses 27 28. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man. Now, put yourself in the position of Arioch. He has just taken credit for saying, I've found the guy. I've found the guy. He's strutting like a peacock around the barnyard. I've found the guy. Then king says, Is that true, Daniel? And Daniel says, No wise man. Arioch's probably thinking, uh-oh. Enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. About that time, he's probably got a huge lump in his throat, and his heart is now racing. Well, at the same time, I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to fume again. Wait a minute. You told me this guy could get the job done. Now he's saying nobody can do that. Ah, but there's that special word, but there is a God in heaven. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? But there is a God in heaven. Christian, there is a God in heaven. Do not worry yourself to death. There is a God in heaven. Your worry, your anxiety betrays the fact that you don't really believe there is a God in heaven who's watching out for you, who's protecting his people, who's guiding his people, who has a plan for his people. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. See, Arioch was so quick to give credit to himself, while Daniel was quick to give credit to God. Now, before we get to the interpretation of the dream, let's look at Daniel's life, some of the characteristics of his life. He was the one that I said lived his life on dependence upon God. Throughout this entire episode, we see Daniel filled with the spirit of Christ, with the spirit of the Messiah. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah described the coming Messiah in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. And he wrote, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now notice this, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Notice what Isaiah says, that the Messiah would have the spirit, capital S, of wisdom and understanding. What do we see about Daniel in chapter 1, verse 17? said that Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, and that he had all skill in, in all literature and wisdom. So many times we wonder, were people in the Old Testament filled with the Holy Spirit? Here's your, here's your answer right here. He was filled with the spirit of the Messiah. He was filled with the spirit of Christ. He was filled with God's Holy Spirit. So what's the secret of Daniel's faith and power? It's really no secret at all. It's this. He kept his eyes on God. I find this truly remarkable. He did not 
focus on the circumstances as dire as they were. Literally, I don't think we get this. Literally, we, he was hours from death. Maybe less. He did not focus on all the potential negative consequences. I could lose an arm. I could lose a leg. I could lose my head. He didn't focus on any of those things. He kept his eyes on God. He knew that is where his help and his strength would come from. It wouldn't come from himself. It would come from God. And recall Daniel's first response to this crisis said that he replied with prudence and discretion. And his reply demonstrates that he understood the gravity and the serious nature of the situation. He demonstrated sound judgment and discernment. And then you contrast that with the actions of Nebuchadnezzar. He did just the opposite. He didn't respond with prudence and discretion. You know what he did? He replied with a fit of rage, and he promised violence if things did not work out to his satisfaction. A couple of things to keep in mind about Daniel. His, his life was marked by prayer. The first thing that Daniel did was what? Pray. And as you continue to read through the book of Daniel, what do we see Daniel doing? Praying. Think of Russ Taft's song, God came through. Daniel prayed to the Lord three times a day. And what did that earn him? A trip to the lion's den. He knew what would happen, but he still what? Prayed. His life was marked by prayer. Please write this down. I'm not sure who said this. It may have been James Montgomery Boyce, but I'm not sure. So if you read it, give him credit. Here it is. Belief in the sovereignty of God leads to a fervent, effectual prayer life. Belief in the sovereignty of God leads to an effectual, fervent prayer life. Do you see how so many times this comes back to the sovereignty of God? It's foundational for us as Christians. You have a strong, sovereign God. And he is working on behalf of his people even now. Thirdly, Daniel was filled with the spirit of worship. Again, when God revealed what the dream was and the meaning of the dream to him, the very first thing Daniel did was worship. That was his immediate response. He worshiped. He acknowledged the greatness and the grace of God. But what about the dream? What exactly does the dream mean? Well, I can't emphasize this enough. This is the most important part of this chapter, the meaning of the dream. It was the contents of the dream that agitated Nebuchadnezzar so badly. It was the contents of the dream that brought to the surface the insecurity and the hostility of Nebuchadnezzar. Please understand, God sent this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Have you ever considered that? God sent this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And he did so to reveal to him in a very visual way, in a very powerful way, that Nebuchadnezzar was a man and nothing more. Throughout this dream, where is Nebuchadnezzar? He's on the sidelines watching. He's got nothing to do with what's going on in the dream. And he finally comes to understand, you know what? 
I'm the head of gold, and I'm smashed to smithereens. I'm a spectator. That's all that I am. That led to his worship. So do you think Nebuchadnezzar was a believer? I don't. But we see an unbeliever worshiping God. Likewise, God gave Daniel insight and understanding of the dream to demonstrate that Daniel served the one and only true God and that the gods of Babylon were false. They were frauds. They were simply a figment of their imaginations. They were powerless. There was no power to be found in them. There was no wisdom to be had by them. And think about this. It was through this crisis that Daniel was brought to the forefront of leadership. And it was through this crisis that God set him and his friends apart from all the other so-called wise men. Don't run from the crisis. Don't run from the crisis. It may be the means by which God will thrust you to the very place that he wants you to be. The meaning of the dream is this. It is God and not man who establishes the kingdoms of this world, and that it is God and not man who destroys the kingdoms of this world. Know this. Their destruction was a judgment of God. Say, so why did God destroy these kingdoms? Why did God destroy these empires? Because they were rebels. They did not keep his law. They did not worship him. Have you ever read through... I'm just fi- I just finished up the book of Ezekiel, and God's pronouncing judgment on nation after nation after nation. You say, well, what's going on? Some of them didn't have anything to do with Israel. You're misreading it. They didn't obey God. So he destroyed them. There is a lesson here for us as Christians to learn. Many of these nations that God pronounces judgment on, they were idol worshipers. Here's the, here's the truth that you need to wrap your head around. If you don't smash the idols in your life, if you don't deal with the idols in your life, God will smash them. And he may do it in such a way that's not pleasant. And he may do it in such a way and with such force that it takes you a while to recover from. You shall have no other gods before me. No thing, no person, no aspiration. See. The meaning of the dream is that there is a kingdom not to come, but that already exists. It's already here. And it has And it will continue to crush all other kingdoms despite how powerful they may appear. You think about it. Nebuchadnezzar, smashed. Media Persia, smashed. Alexander the Great, Greece, smashed. Mighty Roman Empire, smashed. U.S. of A, one day will be smashed. And although we're strangers and aliens in a foreign kingdom, as it were, that does not mean that we are without a kingdom or a king. Our king is Christ. Our creed is Christ. And guess what? Christ is the stone. Jesus referred to himself as the stone. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you 
and given to a people producing its fruits, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Peter's sermon in Acts 4 makes it crystal clear that Jesus is the stone. He said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and of his kingdom there will what? Be no end. There will be no challenges to it. It is unstoppable. And if you choose to stand in front of this stone, you, like Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, the Caesars of Rome, you will be crushed, my friend. Now, Daniel reveals a couple of things about this kingdom of God. First of all, it's God's creation. I won't go back through verses 44 and 45, but you clearly see that. He says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Now, notice that he says, in the days of those kings. What kings is he talking about? The kings that he just talked about with the statue. Okay. That means that God's kingdom existed even as Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the greatest. Do you realize that the reign of Nebuchadnezzar only lasts between 60 and 70 years? I don't even think he outlived Daniel. Then we had the Medes and the Persians. And their empire, I think, lasted a couple hundred years. Alexander the Great, Greece, 100 years. Rome outlasted them all 500 years. See? Second, the kingdom of God is indestructible and infallible. Again, verse 4, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed and it shall stand forever. I don't know about you, but that's a kingdom I won't be a part of. Third is a victorious kingdom. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Don't put your faith in. Don't put your trust in any human government. They will all end. Doesn't matter if it's capitalism. Doesn't matter if it's socialism. Doesn't matter if it's Marxism. You take all the isms you want, they will all fail. They will all be crushed. Fourth, it's an eternal kingdom. Fifth, it's a universal kingdom, Daniel 2.35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. You say, well, what's the message for us today? Two things, two takeaways. First of all, the people of God already belong to the kingdom of God. If you are in Christ, you are in the kingdom. If you're not in Christ, you're not in the kingdom. The people of God are already in the kingdom of God. The question for you is this. Do you belong to the kingdom of God? That's the most important question that you can ask yourself this morning. So, well, how do I know if I'm a part of God's kingdom? Well, one way of answering the question is by asking yourself, on what basis do you include your membership in God's kingdom? See, the kingdom of God has a gate that all who desire to enter God's kingdom must pass through. Know what that gate is? It's called repentance. Repentance. There is no one in God's kingdom who has not repented of their sins. There is no one in God's kingdom who has not taken personal responsibility for their sins. So if repentance is that important, how does the Bible define repentance? First of all, repentance begins with a change of mind. 
But it doesn't end there. It leads to your confession of violating or breaking the law of God. Law of God. You recognize that you have not kept any part of the Ten Commandments or any part of God's law. Repentance is acknowledging your sinfulness, which creates remorse and regret for your actions that have offended God. And you haven't truly acknowledged God and truly acknowledged your remorse and regret for having sinned against him until you place yourself completely in his hands and do exactly what he tells you to do. Listen to me. Praying a prayer of receiving Jesus in your heart does not mean that you have repented. Probably means you haven't. So why do you say that? Because it is at this point that we have such difficulty of giving ourselves fully to Christ. Say, so, well, how do we demonstrate? How do I know that I've given myself fully to Christ? By simply doing what he asks us to do. By doing God's will. And what is, what is God's will when it comes to salvation? Simply this, to believe in him. John 6, 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him in whom he has sent. That's what God wants from you. That's the way to please him, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to confess that Jesus is indeed his son and not a mere man, to lay hold of the reality that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But until you acknowledge that you're a sinner, he will not become a savior to you. He came on earth and he lived and died and rose again to save you. And unless you admit and confess that apart from what Jesus has done for you, that you're totally helpless, you're on the outside of the kingdom. You're, unless you completely trust in him and only in his merit for your salvation, and that you resolve from that point forward to do your very best to live in obedience to him, and that by his grace and strength and with his help you'll forsake all known sin, until you do that, you're outside the kingdom. See? That's what the Father asks for those who desire to enter his kingdom. He doesn't want you to work off your debt. You can't. You can't work off your debt. And God in his grace does not ask you to work off your debt. He asks that you believe in the Lord Jesus, the biblical Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. He asks you to give yourself to him in obedience and turn away from your sin. Second takeaway is this. The people of God have the assurance from God's word of the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of God. That's good news. That's good news, isn't it? Nobody likes to be a loser. Don't be a loser at work. Don't be a loser at home. Nobody wants to be a loser. Well, you know what? Revelation eleven fifteen says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, Oh, I can't wait for this day. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.